As we take a moment to pray before we turn to our lesson, I'd like to read these verses from Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation, and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it, that you are my witnesses, there is no God besides me, or is there any other rock? I know of none. Father, we thank you that you are the rock. Jesus Christ is the rock, the foundation upon which the church has been built. And we're thankful that our feet can rest upon the solid rock. And Father, we are thankful that you've given us your word, which helps us to understand the rock and how to stand on the rock and how to live in accordance with your will and your law. Father, I pray that you will be our strength and guide today. We know that as we look at your word and study the events surrounding it, it's only by your spirit's enlightenment that we can have understanding and truth. Father, I pray your blessing upon each individual here in this room this day, that you will uh, touch each one according to his or her individual needs this day. Father, grant to us focus. I pray that as your word is proclaimed throughout this building today, that you will be lifted up. Anoint our pastor and empower him as he preaches the word with integrity and power. And Father, as your word is, is, is spread throughout the world this day, we ask that there will be a great harvest for the sake of your kingdom. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. I hope you got the little handout I passed out this morning. The handout for this morning is just to give you a place where you can look up some of the things I'll be referring to during the course of this lesson and, and probably uh, the next lesson after that. Let me just uh, pick up the pieces from where we were last Sunday. Following the death of Solomon, the great Davidic Empire disintegrated as a result of civil war between the two pieces of Israel that came out of the breakup of the Davidic Empire. And these two pieces were known as the northern kingdom of Israel, sometimes called Ephraim, later on called Samaria, and then also the southern kingdom of Judah. They became often enemies of one another, which of course, obviously civil war weakens any people, any nation relative to outside powers. For example, one of the reasons for the collapse of the Roman Empire was they spent so much time fighting each other with inside the empire, killing off the great Roman troops amongst each other that they didn't have the strength to resist the barbarians who are crossing the borders. And so it would be for Israel. Through a period of about 200 years, the northern kingdom of Israel did not have a single godly king. I emphasized that last time. It's one of the most incredible stories to read in scripture. 19 kings over a course of a little over 200 years and not a single one of them does the scripture say that he did right in the eyes of God. And as a result, God allowed that nation to become apostate, which they chose to do and allowed them then to be conquered by the Assyrians. And I showed you this map of the Assyrian Empire last time. I realize it's kind of small, but you can all at least see the general 
uh, theme here. The Mediterranean Sea, the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea, the Persian Gulf, the Red Sea. You keep those five bodies of water in mind and you know that they pretty much surround this heartland. Sometimes it's called the cockpit of civilization or the cradle of civilization. And uh, the Assyrian Empire controlled all of what is today modern Iraq plus Syria and most of what is Jordan today and Israel and, uh, for, and, and the upper part of the Nile Valley as well. This was the great Assyrian Empire. And as I mentioned to you last time, they were viewed as kind of the Nazis of ancient civilization because of the heinous things they did to people that they conquered. They were very much glory mongers and uh, they did build a, a powerful regime, although short-lived. And, and this empire, of course, existed long after Jonah's story. We all know the story about how Jonah was told by God to go to Nineveh and warn them. And this was probably a hundred years before the great uh, Assyrian Empire arose to become what you see here on the map. Well, the northern kingdom up in here was swept into that great Assyrian Empire. And the, ruler, the, the leaders of the land were carried off into captivity. The, the so-called Ten Lost Tribes of Israel, and we talked a little bit about that last time. Uh, the land then in turn became polluted by Gentiles who were moved in by the Assyrians into that region, and those Gentiles are the ones who intermarried with the Jews and created later the Samaritans, whom the Jews hated so in the days of Jesus. The southern kingdom of Judah survived that conquest, and as I pointed out last time, if this map were really accurate, it would show that right around Jerusalem, the territory in here was not absorbed into the Assyrian Empire. Uh, sure, there was a certain degree of tribute that had to be paid, but it wasn't actually absorbed into the Assyrian Empire. And that was because godly kings had ruled in Judah, and at the time of the Assyrian attack, there was a godly king by the name of Hezekiah who was on the throne. And what he did, of course, was to lead his people away from the evil that had permeated the northern kingdom and he led them to the feet of God and by, by humility and submission to God, God delivered them from the Assyrian attack. And so Judah lasted beyond the kingdom of uh, Israel in the north by more than a hundred years. Unfortunately, during that hundred years though, apostate kings came to the throne in Judah and godless kings began to lead them, particularly in the latter part of that period of time, so that they were ultimately overrun by the great Babylonian Empire. And I think that's where we left off last time. Let me just put this map up here so that we see the contents of the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire ruled basically everything the Assyrian Empire did, except it didn't really rule Egypt. The Babylonians were a threat to the Egyptians, but never actually conquered Egypt itself. And so, but everything else that the Assyrians ruled, the Babylonians ruled. This is called the Neo-Babylonian Empire to distinguish it from the Babylonian Empire that, lit, that existed back at the time of Abraham, which was over a thousand years uh, before, which is called the Old Babylonian Empire. So. In 606 BC, the land that had been promised by God to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob became little more than a part of a province in the Babylonian Empire. Why? Because God's people had turned their back on him. 
Just as the leadership of Israel in the north had been carried off by the Assyrians, so the leadership of the southern kingdom of Judah was carried off by the Babylonians. And so the whole country was actually worse off than it had been under the Shofatim, the judges. Worse off. With the conquest of Babylonia by the Persian armies in 539, Judah and what had been Israel became absorbed into the largest empire the world had known to that moment in time. The Persian Empire, which began down here at Persepolis, which was the main capital of the Persian Empire, had spread all the way to the Indus River of ancient India. Ancient India is named for the Indus River. The Indus River is named for the god Indra, which is one of the Hindu gods. So the land of the of Indra, if you will, all the way over here. This is actually in Pakistan today because in 1947 the British separated Pakistan and India from each other. So over to here and the Persians would eventually push all the way over, conquer Egypt, clear over into the what was called Cyrene in those days, Libya in later times, uh, all of Asia Minor and actually they crossed over into Europe itself. So from the Aegean Sea to the Indus River, this vast empire was created. And the world of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was swallowed up, just a part of one province in that vast empire. The period in Hebrew history from 606 BC, which is when Nebuchadnezzar first conquered Jerusalem, until 536 BC, is known as the Babylonian captivity. And that's on your first list that I gave you a month or so ago. Jeremiah, the prophet, had said under God's inspiration that this captivity would last 70 years. And then God would re restore the Jews to their land. Let's look at what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who sent them? God sent them. Again, what you see over and over again is the providential power of God. Things don't accidentally happen to us. They are all allowed or initiated by God. He says in verse 5, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become fathers of sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands. <coughs> that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray for the, for the Lord on its behalf. For its welfare, in its welfare, you will have welfare. No, notice that. God is saying, I'm sending you into a heathen, pagan, wicked city. Pray for it and pray for its people. Don't sit there and cuss the day you were thrown there and curse the people. Pray for them. Verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word for you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. 
then you will recall, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes. And I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Notice the context of that passage that we so often quote. You know, we, we often take those words there in verse 11. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Notice the context. I, you know, it's not wrong to take a verse and claim it for yourself. It's not wrong to take a verse and pray for someone through it. But it's also important to always remember the context. It was in a very, very difficult time for the Jews. They were in Babylon. That would be like us being taken off and uh, put into Cuba or, you know, someplace where we felt like the regime was heathen and, and, and awful and uh, where uh, we, we felt like there was no hope. And God says, I have a future and I have a hope for you. Just believe me and live in obedience. And notice God said to them, go ahead and have children and, and give your children husbands and wives. There is a future. Increase, don't decrease. This was God's word through Jeremiah to his people. So even, even though they were being carried off into captivity because of their apostasy, not everyone, of course, was apostate. And there were those who were carried off into captivity who, who undoubtedly were committed to God and loved God. As the, is it Yancey who wrote the, the book, uh, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People or whoever? No? Well, whoever did. Anybody know? Oh, that's right. It was a Jewish rabbi. Where is God when it hurts? Yeah. Similar idea, I guess. God, God is, you know, bad things or what seem to be bad things can happen to God's people. And we see this here because some of these people certainly were godly people who were carried into captivity. During that period, tens of thousands of Jews, probably hundreds of thousands, lived in Mesopotamia in what is today Iraq, in what was then Babylonia. The Temple of Solomon had been destroyed. In 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar's army flattened the temple, the great and glorious temple, the one that we'll be reading about when we study the book of 1 Kings, this wonderful building with all this elaborate wealth that was poured into it. God allowed it to be destroyed. One of the things you're going to discover is the Jews felt like they were always going to be okay because the temple was there. As long as the temple was there, they would be okay, and God would never allow the temple to be destroyed because that's his home. Well, God allowed the temple to be destroyed. And so centralized worship based on animal sacrifices came to an end. There was no temple where they could make these sacrifices. So in order to maintain their faith, the synagogue form of worship appears to have first developed in Babylonia. Let me read you the words of uh, Bible scholar Charles Pfeiffer. He says, During the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament periods, there arose the institution which, has come to be, uh, which was to become the focal point of Jewish life through the centuries. No record has been left of the origin of synagogue worship. Jewish tradition suggests that the first synagogues were established during the time of the Babylonian exile. And so in the period between 606 and 536 was when the synagogue was first 
put into actual uh, operation. The question is why? Why did the Jews develop synagogue worship? Was it because they were unaware of Jeremiah's prophecy that they would go back in 70 years? Or was it because they didn't believe his prophecy and, and didn't believe they'd ever go back? Well, probably many felt that way, especially the apostate Jews. Or was it simply because they thought 70 years was too long and after all, God had said, build homes, have wives, ha give wives and husbands for your children. In other words, it's going to be a while and we can't wait 70 years to, before we worship again. And so they developed a form of formal worship that we know as the synagogue in an alien empire. Now there are some scholars who believe that the idea of the synagogue was already latent in Jewish culture in some form or another. In other words, they were already gathering in small communities in various places in Israel or Judah even while the temple was in operation and may have been functioning on an, on an unofficial basis uh, even before the exile. Most important, important question though is, did God lead them to establish the synagogue form of worship? Scripture doesn't say that it was God's idea, but neither does the Scripture deny it or condemn it. And what we know from the New Testament is that Jesus worshiped and taught in the synagogue, which seems to put divine imprimatur on it. Let me read again what Charles Pfeiffer says. The word synagogue is of Greek origin, meaning a gathering of people or a congregation. The Hebrew word for such a gathering is Knesset, the name used for the parliament in the modern state of Israel. The word synagogue is used for the local congregation of Jews and also for the building in which the community meets for its assemblies and services. In Hebrew, the building may be referred to as the Beth HaKneset, the house of the assembly. Another term that became common during the time of the exile and the post-exilic period is the name Hebrew. Now if exile and post-exilic are not common to you, it's on that sheet that I passed out to you this morning. You'll see that I put up here uh, Israelite eras in the first millennium BC and I repeated some things we had already which was the united monarchy the divided monarchy. The exilic period is the Babylonian exile from 606 to 536. The post-exilic period is the period from that until the end of the Old Testament period about the year 400 give or take a few years. And then the intertestamental period can be said to be from about 400 to about 7 BC when the New Testament picks up with the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus Christ. Then you have the Israelite temple periods, which we'll be talking about as well. The first temple period being the Temple of Solomon, of course, from 960 to 586. And then there was no temple for 70 years, from 586 until the Zerubbabel Temple, which we'll be talking about this morning, was completed in 516. And then the second te te uh, temple period from that date to the destruction of the Temple of Herod in the year 70, and never has there been a temple erected since that time. So that's why if you believe that the references in Ezekiel and other places to an end-time temple is referring to a real Jewish end-time temple, that would be the third temple period then and would be, of course, something yet in the future. I remember when many, many years ago there were books out talking about how 
the Jews were buying Indiana limestone and storing it up because they were getting ready to build the temple. And oh, of course, there was all kinds of flap about that. And of course, it was all shown to be just a false story because the Jews aren't going to import any limestone from the U.S. when they have better limestone in Israel to start with. There are Jews, certainly, who would like to build a new temple. There's some big problems with it, of course, uh, because the whole place where the temple would be built is owned by the Muslims. And so that has to be uh, dealt with first. Another term that becomes common during the exile and the post-exilic period is the term Jew, or the name Jew. The Hebrew word, which is translated Jew, is Yehudi, which itself comes from Yehuda or Judah. And of course, we know Judah was one of the patriarchs. He was the fourth son of Jacob, and he was the patriarch of the tribe called Judah. Because the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed in 722 BC by the Assyrians, Judah was the only remaining Hebrew state. The only place left where Hebrews actually had a territory, a land in which they lived, and a state that they could call their own. Now, in that state, there lived Levites, Simeonites, Benjamites, because you remember that the northern kingdom is called the, when, they, when it was carried in captivity, they talked about the ten lost tribes. Ten lost tribes. That means two tribes were somewhere else. Well, those were the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. But actually, Simeon was also there. Simeon was inside the territory of Judah. So it's not even accurate to call it the ten lost tribes. It'd be the nine lost tribes at best. Plus the fact during the centuries, many from Ephraim and, and Issachar and Naphtali and so forth had migrated south into Judah because they wanted to be where the true, tr true temple worship was still going on. When we study First Kings, we're going to discover that Jeroboam set up a golden calf in Dan and one in uh, Bethel and he wanted the people in Israel to worship there and not go to Jerusalem to worship because then they might want to rejoin up with the southern kingdom. And, and so there were Jews who wanted to worship correctly, and so they migrated down into Judah. So in Judah, you had representatives of all the tribes of Israel. However, the majority of the population was made up of the people of the tribe of Judah. And so it became common for outsiders who were referring to uh, the Israelites to call them the Yehudi, the Yehudi, the, the Judeans, what we call the Jews. In the Old Testament, uh, check it out sometime. In the Old Testament, you will not find the word Jew, Jews, or Jewish in any books written before the exile. You won't find it in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Jeremiah, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Uh, none of those books will you find the word Jew or Jewish. But as soon as you get into the exilic prophets, which are Daniel and, and Jeremiah, particularly, those two, Ezekiel is also an exilic prophet. But in Daniel, uh, in Daniel and Jeremiah, you will find the word Jew. And then in the post-exilic writings of Ezra and Nehemiah, Esther in particular, and Zechariah, you will find the word Jew, Jewish, Jews, being used. Those are the only books in which you will find those words. So you will clearly discover the word Jew was never used before the exile to refer to the people of Israel. Now, you will find one usage in the book of 1 Chronicles. And that's because 1 Chronicles is believed to have been compiled during the exilic or post-exilic period. And so the compiler just slipped that word in probably by accident. Well, not by accident, but by choice. 
uh, in there instead of Hebrew or Israel, Israelite at that particular point. And what, what's interesting is the most frequent use of the word Jew in the Old Testament is in the book of Esther. You find Jew, 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 Jews all over the place there in that particular book. So, exilic period was very important because in it were created the synagogue and the use of the word Jew, neither of which precedes the exile. So it's not proper to refer to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as Jews because they weren't Jews. Some of their descendants were Jews, but they themselves were not called Jews because Judah had not even been born in the days of Abraham and Isaac until, until the time of Jacob. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which are the last specifically historical books or narratives of the Old Testament, uh, those two books describe the return of the Jews to Judah and Jerusalem in the late 6th and early 5th centuries before Christ. In other words, about 2,500 years ago. These books describe what is called the post-exilic period, which you see on your list here, up here. Post-exilic period, 536 to 400 B.C. That's an important period because several books of the Bible are written in at that particular period of time. And uh, that period dates from around 538, 536 until 400. And the uh, writings, which are called Esther, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are all set in that post-exilic period. In other words, after the Jews have come back and, and begun to rebuild the temple and to eventually rebuild the city of Jerusalem, that's the post-exilic period, after the exile. And that's when Esther, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are actually written, is during that particular period. The first return of the Jews from Babylonia to Judah occurred in the period 538 to 536. About 50,000, roughly, 50,000 became the remnant, the small group that left Babylon and went back to Judah, to Jerusalem. And they were led by a man by the name of Zerubbabel, whose name means Seed of Babylon, who is actually the seed of the restoration of the, of the country of Judah. He was the grandson of the next to last king of Judah, Jehoiachin. He was his grandson. So he was of royal line of the tribe of David, uh, of the descendant of David. What we discover, though, is most of the Jews didn't go back. Most of them stayed in Babylon. Thank you very much. We're doing very fine here. And we've got houses. We've got lands. We've got a going business here. Why do we want to go back to Jerusalem? In fact, many of them, of course, had been born in Babylon. They had never known Jerusalem or Judah. It, it reminds me of the situation in Germany in the 1930s. I mean, it was obvious when Hitler came to power that there was, you know, that he didn't like the Jews too well. And the Nazi or the National Socialist Party, as they called it, the, Na the Nazi Party, began to put pressure on the Jews. But the Jews kept saying, it'll get better. This is just a temporary thing. It'll get better. And so most of them didn't leave the country while they had a chance. A few thousand did. Fortunately, people like Einstein did. But most of them stayed and died because they just couldn't believe it was going to get worse. And, and so most of the Jews didn't leave Babylon. You know, how many were there by the time 536 rolled around? 
You know, we don't know how many were carried off in the exile, but certainly tens of thousands. And by then they had multiplied to probably several hundred thousand. And, and uh, enough so that uh, in, the, in the book of Esther, the, the, they're worried. Haman's worried about how many Jews there are around and, and wants to have them eliminated. And so they stay behind. And you, you find them playing a role in the book of Esther. And of course, Esther herself was one of the Jews who was left behind, as was Mordecai. And that was in the, early, the first quarter of the 5th century before Christ. In other words, like from between 500 and 475 in that region in there, B.C. These Jews that lived in Babylon, along with Jews that had fled to Egypt and elsewhere, formed what is known as the Diaspora. The Diaspora is a Greek word meaning dispersion. The Jews being dispersed out of the Holy Land into other parts of the world. And the dispersion would grow even more during the time of the Greek conquest of Palestine and then of the Roman conquest of Palestine. The Jews would become more widely dispersed and that's why Paul could actually go to Rome and preach to Jews in Rome. What would Jews be doing in Rome? Because they had been dispersed, they had been scattered as early as the, the Assyrians, of course, carrying them off, uh, but later in the Babylonian and then after Alexander, well, particularly later during the so-called uh, Seleucid reign in Israel and uh, then in the Roman reign, many, many thousands were forced out, fled, ran away because of Roman, particularly Roman persecution. And so you have this main return. The remnant of 50,000 comes back around 536 or so. They're there at least by 536. A second and much smaller return took place in the mid-5th century before Christ under the leadership of a priest named Ezra. And we know about him from the book that he wrote. According to the record that is found in Scripture, the final return occurred a few years later led by a nobleman by the name of Nehemiah. And so you have the return of the Jews to Israel in three phases. Zerubbabel's return, which was the main one, then Ezra's return, and then Nehemiah's return. Ezra and Nehemiah being just a few thousand or a few hundred uh, people being involved in that. And of course we know Nehemiah was a high-ranking official in the government of Persia under Artaxerxes I. And so there's kind of that interesting little dialogue that goes along between Nehemiah and Artaxerxes getting permission to do this, this whole thing. The first returnees, after a long delay, began construction of the second temple. The second temple is sometimes called in this period of time Zerubbabel's temple. Later in time it will have a different name and we'll, we'll mention that. But what they found was stiff opposition. When they got back there, the people in the land didn't say, oh, welcome back, we're glad to have you here. Uh, please rebuild the temple and please rebuild Jerusalem. No, that wasn't exactly the situation. If you will, turn to the book of Ezra, chapter 4. At the beginning of the book, uh, at the beginning of the chapter, Ezra chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord, the God of, of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's household and said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God 
and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. You see, Esarhaddon ruled Assyria in the early 7th century before Christ. And he sent many Gentiles into the land to repopulate the land from those that had been carried into captivity by Sargon and uh, his successor Sennacherib. And so we, we have these people. Now, who are these people? Well, some of these people are some, what later would be called Samaritans. They're mixed breed. Some of them are actual Hebrews, Israelites, but they have been apostate. Some of them may have been genuine. We, we don't know. But we know from, from Zerubbabel's response and that of Jeshua, the priest, that um, they didn't view them as being genuine. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua, in verse 3, and the rest of the heads of the father's household of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build for the Lord God of Israel. As Cyrus, king of Persia, has commanded us, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So we're looking at a 20-year period. Now these people came back to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild their own homes. It takes them 20 years to build the temple, you know, to get around to actually building a temple, partly because here's all this opposition. These other people don't want them to build it. And then there was a great attempt to stop them by the governor, the governor of the province over here. The Persian Empire was divided into 120 provinces. They called them satrapies. And each was ruled by a satrap, S-A-T-R-A-P, satrap. And Jerusalem was in the satrapy known as beyond the river. That's what the scripture calls it, beyond the river, meaning west of the Euphrates. So there was a province right in here that Jerusalem was in. And the governor of that province, his name was Tatanai. And he challenged Jerubbabel to prove that he had the authority to build this temple. And when Jerubbabel said, well, look, Cyrus the Great gave us permission and he told us to go ahead and do it. Tatnai is not satisfied. And so he writes directly to the emperor. He writes a letter straight to Darius, the emperor, back in, well, it's hard to know where the emperor was at any given moment. The Persian Empire was very unusual in that it had four capitals. The original capital was at Persepolis. A secondary capital was at Ecbatana, which had been the capital of the Median Empire, which the Medes and the Persians were cousins. There was a third capital at Susa, which was, it's up in the mountains, so it's a cooler place, a place to go in the summertime to, to have your capital. It's in the Zagros Mountains. It used to be the capital of the Elamite Empire. And, and then Babylonia, Babylon, the great city of Babylon. How could you not have it as a capital, too? I mean, you know, it's got this long history of being such a grand and glorious city. And so, anyway, Tatanai writes Darius and says, do these people really have this authority to do this? I mean... Where's the evidence of this? Well, what's interesting is Darius takes this matter seriously. And Darius orders a search for the proclamation. It's a fascinating story here in the uh, sixth chapter. What starts in the fifth chapter, what I just kind of summarized for you, occurs in the fifth chapter. And then in the sixth chapter, beginning at the first verse, we have this account. Then King Darius issued a decree. And search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. 
In Ecbectana, in the fortress, which is in the province of Media, a scroll was found, and there was written in it as follows. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus the king issued a decree, and this is the decree, concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the temple, the place where sacrifices are offered, be rebuilt, and let its foundations be retained, its height being 60 cubits and its width being 60 cubits, with three layers of huge stones and one layer of timbers. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. Also let the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be returned and brought to their places in the temple in Jerusalem, and you shall put them in the house of God. Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, and, and Shethar Bozanai, and your colleagues, uh, the officials of the provinces beyond the river, keep away from there. Leave this work on the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for these elders of Judah in rebuilding of this house of God. The full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the province beyond the river and that without delay. Talk about humiliation. <laughs> Both Tatanai and, and Shethar Bozanai, who is sort of like second in command, you know, vice governor or something. Both these guys thought they had Zerubbabel and the Jews over a barrel. Ha, huh, where's your authority? I'm going to write to the emperor and, and, and I'm going to fix you guys. And it turns out he's got to eat crow. He's not only got to let him build it, he's got to use his own taxes from his own province to pay for rebuilding the temple. If God doesn't have a sense of humor, there isn't one. And what we find is, of course, God is a God of justice. He will prevail. No matter what it looks like at the moment, he will prevail. And our job is to hang in there. And that's what Zerubbabel and they were doing. They were continuing to build the temple in spite of all the harassment. It took them a long time, but <coughs> they kept on building it. And God blessed them. And God empowered them. And God enabled them to do it. God had moved Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great was not a Jew. He was the founder of the Persian Empire. He was a pagan. The religion that developed inside the Persian Empire was called Zoroastrianism. It was kind of a cosmic dualism. And it wasn't at all, you know, in accord with, with the faith of the, the men and women of, of Israel. He had given permission. Not only had he given permission, he had said, we're going to pay for it. We're going to pay for it. And then God moved Darius to actually seriously pursue this and to discover whether his grandfather had actually made this proclamation or not. And then when he discovered it, he enforced it and he added to it. So what it tells us is that Satan may rule in the hearts of many, but God overrules to bring about his will and his divine purpose. This is a powerful lesson in the sovereignty of Almighty God and concerning the perseverance and faith of his people. The arduous process building the temple had taken over 20 years and it wasn't because they were constantly building for 20 years. They hadn't even bothered to start for the first few years. But they finally finished construction of the temple around the year 516 BC. And from that moment until the destruction of the temple 
in Jerusalem in AD 70, the one that Jesus said, not stone, one stone will be left upon another, that is called the Second Temple Period. And it's called that because there is no record in Scripture or anywhere else of the Temple of Zerubbabel being destroyed. So we have to assume that Zerubbabel's temple was simply renovated and enlarged and expanded by Herod, built around and built onto to, to make it this greater structure that the disciples just stood in awe of and pointed out to Jesus how great this building was. And so there are just two temple periods, first and second. And as I said before, there may be a third temple period, depending on, on what you believe about the writings of Ezekiel and other end times prophets, about a new temple being built one day, even though it's hard to fathom why such a temple would be built, since certainly within God's economy, the animal sacrifices are uh, totally unnecessary and, and would not be you know, an essential part of, of true faith uh, in the end. But, but we'll see, won't we, Lord willing? Let it be sooner rather than later. In, in my opinion, yes. Um, when the temple was destroyed and at the end of the animal sacrifices and everything captivity, how were their sins atoned Yeah, well, you know, in synagogue worship, they don't have sacrifice of animals. And so it becomes that difficult five-letter word, faith. Has to be by faith. Uh, that is not to say, of course, that no animal sacrifice ever occurred outside of the temple venue because we know that before there ever was a temple, sacrifices occurred here and there and other places in, in various places. But it didn't become a regular formalized worship again by sacrificing animals. And, and many Jews this day who are really committed Jews feel like, whoa, you know, we got to get that going again for, for the sake of the people. So atonement has to be by, by simple faith in believing that the God who allowed the temple to be destroyed is somehow carrying that over or in, you know, ministering to them. Yeah, one, one carryover too is, this, is the Seder and Passover is annually the sacrificial lamb is celebrated. Right, and of course the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Yeah, right. And so these are things that have more or less substituted for this.